Thank you to Contentful for supporting our podcast. I'm Marcelo Lewin, and this is the Headless Creator Podcast, Season 1, Episode 27. So let's get to it. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 27 of the Headless Creator Podcast, where I have conversations with content architects, designers, web developers, creators, and other professionals who are using a headless CMS and other related headless technologies for omni-channel content delivery. I'm your host, Marcelo Lewin, a senior content solutions architect focused on content modeling, content architecting, and headless CMS implementations. Today, I'll be chatting all about CSS with my guest, Mark Ryba, a senior developer at Smart Bug Media, with over six years of front-end development experience in the marketing space. In his current role, he develops middleware, microservices, websites, and web applications. He's also very passionate about using advanced CSS techniques to create great user experiences. But before we get started, if you want more podcast episodes, tutorials, webinars, and blog articles, all focused on creating websites, web apps, and IoT apps using headless technologies, please visit www.headlesscreator.com. All right, Mark. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. I'm glad to have you here. I've been looking around for a while now for somebody with a lot of experience for CSS to bring on the podcast, and I'm glad I found you. I think we connected through Reddit, right? Yep, that's correct. Saw your Reddit post, and yeah, CSS has been something I've been really passionate about for a long time. As you said in my intro, I'm uh, primarily a front-end developer. So CSS is kind of my Swiss Army knife, and it's something that I feel like a lot of uh, developers maybe underappreciate to a degree. And so I thought it was an awesome opportunity for me to come on here and kind of evangelize it and convince you that CSS isn't something terrible and a pain to learn, but can actually be um, pretty fun and also is a really performant tool in a front-end development tool belt. Yep, definitely. Well, we're going to jump in and talk a lot about CSS and the details. But before we do, um, you kind of did already, but give us a little bit more about your background. How did you get to where you are today? Sure, absolutely. So um, I'll start all the way at the beginning. And I actually first learned basic HTML and CSS in middle school, believe it or not. I am a little bit on the younger side. I'm 26. And so in eighth grade, our whole curriculum for our computer lab was based around building personal websites. The teacher started by teaching us basic HTML. And this was back in the days of tables and a whole bunch of parent wrappers and markup and CSS. And as the the class kind of got its bearings and started building out their sites, most of the students quickly kind of tried to convince the teacher for a different solution. So she did uh, allow us to instead use Microsoft front page, if you can remember that. Completely can remember that. And I try to forget it because it's more of a nightmare, actually. I don't doubt it at all. I was the only one in the class who actually stuck and just stayed with uh, basic HTML and CSS. So that was kind of my foundation. I built a, a couple of websites in college as well. And that was my first kind of experience working with a CMS. And then when I graduated, I actually, I had a degree in history. I didn't have any formal development training from college. I got a job at a marketing agency where um, obviously being a history major, I was really good at writing. And so I started on the marketing side doing content production and uh, social media management, building out email drip campaigns, all that kind of thing. As the agency grew, our technical needs grew as well. And so I kind of uh, adjusted my role to meet that need and really took on development on our marketing automation platform of choice, which was also our CMS. And that was primarily HubSpot, and I still work in that ecosystem today. That software is a managed SaaS product, so there aren't a lot of server-side 
functionalities to it, at least there weren't until uh, very recently. And so that meant that we really needed to focus on CSS to make a lot of our layouts happen. It wasn't something where we can kind of download, uh, get a plugin for for WordPress or, or similar that could handle not only the logic and the, the data side of things, but also the layout. And so that really uh, required me to hone my skills and get very familiar with CSS syntax and uh, how it can work and how we can optimize it. And still something that I, uh, I use heavily to this day. That's awesome. So why don't we start with CSS and just define CSS for those that are not extremely familiar with it? Yeah, absolutely. CSS obviously stands for cascading style sheets. Something that might be helpful is to think of CSS less as a programming language and more as like JSON to JavaScript. It really is all about just declaring styles that are actually going to be used in an HTML document or potentially JavaScript or other things as well. But primarily, it's really a companion to HTML. And it's just declaring using its its built-in specifications and properties what your layout is supposed to look like. So that's anything from colors and margins and padding all the way to full-on layouts with some more advanced techniques that I'm sure we'll get into in a little bit. So why is it called CSS? Sure. So again, cascading style sheets. And in a way, it's because they can be quite long documents. They are very, um, very short lines. So unlike writing something in HTML or, or JS... Primarily, when you're writing standard style CSS, you're really just doing a couple of words per line. So they do get to be very long documents. And that's shifting a little bit with some people coming up with strategies to kind of segment out their files. But in general, there's a lot of white space in declaring the styles. Again, sort of similar to JSON. Talking about embedded versus external or inline CSS, those are all different ways to declare those styles. So again, it is a syntax. For talking about inline, which is probably the easiest to understand, that's writing the CSS properties actually in the HTML document itself. So meaning like as you declare an H2 tag or something like that, you have a style attribute in the HTML element. And within there, you can write CSS specific to that individual element. So let's say you have multiple paragraph tags all in your HTML document. Instead of writing out each font size and line height and margin for each one of those individually, a lot of them might have overlapping styles. And in that sense, uh, what we can do is build a class or a selector. So we can write our rules that will apply to multiple elements on our page. So we can say that every paragraph on our page should have 16 point font and a line height of 1.4. If we want to do that, we obviously don't want to do it in the actual HTML elements. Instead, what we can do is apply a class to that element. So class equals quote unquote, whatever you want to name it. And then we can use an embedded style. And that's where we create a dedicated style element in the HTML document. So that's going to be open caret style, close caret. And then we can write our CSS syntax in there. And that CSS is going to be applied wherever in the document the style element shows up. So usually you want to put that in the header. That way you don't have a flash of unstyled content. As soon as that rule is declared in the browser session, then any elements that render following it will automatically have those styles applied. External style sheets are where you actually have a dedicated .css file and you link that to your HTML document via a link element. So link, you usually want to designate that it is a style sheet. So link rel equals style sheet and then source 
whatever the source or the path is for that CSS file. And that's where cascading comes into place, right? Because inline will overwrite embedded, which will overwrite external, correct? Correct. Mm -hmm. So is there a best practice? I mean, is inline okay or is embedded better or external style sheets? Uh, what, What is the industry best practice when it comes to that? Sure. So everything really has its place. So inline can make sense, especially depending on the the CMS you might be using. It might be easier if uh, something is a style is individual to a certain element. So you see this a lot with um, background images. Um, You typically don't want to have the the same background image on multiple elements on a single page. So in that sense, an inline style makes sense. Inline styles also make sense when coding marketing emails or, or HTML emails, just because the email spec for, for HTML is a little bit farther behind. And also you can't reference usually external style sheets in those cases. Inline styles can also sometimes make sense with some of the JavaScript frameworks that we're seeing now. So declaring a inline style on a React component based on props that it's, that component is inheriting, that can also make sense. However, the, the thing to really kind of keep in the back of your head for in terms of best practices, is this style only going to be applied to this single element? And that's really the only case where you want to use inline. If something is going to be shared across multiple elements, kind of, again, mirroring JavaScript components, if something's going to be shared, it should probably be bundled and assigned to a class. That way, it's less code that ultimately you have to write and also less code that the browser has to execute. So the more that you can leverage shared classes definitely helps in terms of performance and also authoring. Embedded style sheets are especially important if you're really optimizing a page. You want to load all of your critical CSS first on the page. So obviously, if you have a a linked style sheet in your page or your application, that requires a request to go out and get it and then process the styles and then apply them. And all of that happens very quickly, obviously. But if someone's on a slower connection, again, you can have these flashes of unstyled content. And actually, if you look at Google Lighthouse and kind of performance metrics that are becoming more and more popular and more and more reliable... Google's really kind of taking a hard stance against layout shifts and things that happen that disturb a layout because the page is waiting on a request to come back and be processed. So in that sense, embedded CSS at the head of a, of a file is going to make sure that the first view or the first paints for that page are going to have all the styles that they're supposed to have. And it's going to make sure those styles are applied as quickly as possible while also not preventing further content from downloading on the page. So typically, if you're looking at a very optimized page, you want to load just the necessary kind of quote unquote above the fold styles in that head area. And then when we start talking about external style sheets, this is really important for anything that's going to be shared across pages. So remember, we went from individual elements to shared classes on a page. So now we're talking about shared classes across your site or across your app. And the nice thing about external style sheets, obviously, is that they can be cached. So a lot of, if you look at like Gatsby and some of the other really performance static site approaches that we're seeing in the market right now, what they do is they'll load the necessary CSS for the page so that it's ready uh, very quickly. And then once the page is finished loading... It will then in the background go and get that kind of parent style sheet so that any styles on a page that you might click on 
after the one that you originally land on. Those styles are already loaded in your browser memory and it's going to lead to a better user experience because your page is going to load just that much faster. And all of that is done automatically with these static site generators, right? You as a developer don't have to do much about that. Correct. If you're using something like Gatsby or, or Next, I believe Hugo does something similar. However, again, you do always have the option to, if you do want to code split or do some other CSS organizations, again, CSS is a, a very flexible, I'm even hesitant to call it a language. It really is just kind of the markup or style declarations. So you are able to declare where you'd like. So you see some people who will write, for example, they'll write their CSS at a module level or a component level and then run it through a preprocessor like Gulp. Or again, if you're using a static site generator, it'll take your code where you want it to be for development and put it where it needs to be in production. So we're seeing more and more of those build tools. That makes a lot of sense. So you have the central place where you can update and everything by the build, it puts the right code in the right places where it's needed. Precisely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, you keep talking about CSS and the web. Is CSS pretty much web-centric or can it be used for, let's say, mobile devices or IoT devices? CSS obviously was written to spec for web technology, specifically HTML documents. However, as we see more and more kind of blurred lines between what is web or what is native. You could definitely use something like React Native to use JavaScript technologies to write a mobile app. And obviously CSS is going to be referenced there as well as something like Electron to uh, build kind of native applications using those web technologies that are familiar to a lot of us. Beyond that, CSS is not only leveraged by HTML, it's really used for any kind of markup language, or at least it is capable of being used for any markup language. So for example, as a marketer, something we do um, fairly commonly is if a designer gives us an SVG element and we need to animate it, we can actually animate it directly using CSS by referencing the elements within the SVG markup. Even though it isn't technically HTML natively, we are able to kind of manipulate those elements within the graphic file itself. And then we can just simply reference the SVG file as a standalone asset, bring it in, and all of our animations and styling are there as well. Is there a CSS spec for IoT devices, for example, Alexa? And with Alexa, you can have her speak louder, you can have her whisper, you can, is there a way to define this sort of predefine it and then attach it to an Alexa speech document that you're aware of? Very well, it could be. I haven't had the opportunity to work with Alexa skills to this point, but it definitely could be. So I wouldn't be surprised. Again, uh, kind of going back to the, the JSON and JS relationship, you're really just declaring kind of properties in a way that, that makes sense. I could definitely see that being the case. So, so far we've been talking about quote unquote plain vanilla CSS, right? Straight out CSS. What's the difference between that and a CSS framework? And why do CSS frameworks exist? Sure. So CSS frameworks, essentially, what you can think about is, again, kind of looking at the foundational aspects that I've laid out thus far. If you have a, a big site where you have you know, 30, 40, 50 pages, not including a blog, that's a lot of styles to write. On average, I would say most of my elements probably have... 10 to 15 lines to them. So once you start scaling that out among, among sections and pages, et cetera, they can be a lot of code. So what CSS frameworks are, are they're essentially a starting place for a lot of people. So Bootstrap obviously is probably the most popular 
in the space. And uh, what Bootstrap really did was not only come out with a lot of useful utilities that people can use. So built out, you can kind of think of it as a component library, built in hero image or hero section classes, as well as buttons, accordions, etc. A lot of these useful elements that you'll see across multiple sites, and you don't want to write custom for each and every project. But on top of that, Bootstrap got very popular because it standardized a grid system. And it is really kind of like a design system built into your CSS framework. It's more of a methodology, really, than anything else. So thinking about your sections as containers of 12-column rows, and then being able to declare your different elements being, all right, this should span six columns as opposed to four or five. And Bootstrap helps you, especially with the responsiveness of some of those design concepts. Well, I'm glad you mentioned responsiveness because how does responsive design and CSS relate to each other? And then once, um, because I want you to clear that up first, but then I'd like to go back to, you mentioned Bootstrap, but I want to know if there's other frameworks. But let's start with responsive design and how CSS really helps with that. Sure. So a lot of people don't know this, but CSS actually was probably more responsive than you would think a lot earlier than you would think. CSS actually has, you'll see a lot if you're um, doing kind of standard front-end web development, you'll see at media tags or blocks that are typically used for declaring a different viewport. And essentially what that allows you to do is declare different rules for different screen sizes. But if you look at the actual spec, you also are able to declare that these rules are should be applied to not just screens, but also you can create a dedicated printing style sheet or a dedicated printing style block. So if you want to make a page appear a certain way when you print it, you can do at media print and then declare all of your rules in there. But responsive design specifically, this is where CSS has kind of blossomed over, I would say the last 10 years. Is obviously as screen sizes have changed and websites need to be able to display on a variety of different screen sizes and and devices and connection speeds, the concepts around making sure that your website is responsive have really evolved in CSS. So uh, when I first started developing, like I said earlier in the call, a lot of it was tables and tables uh, have a very rigid structure. And a lot of the motivation behind releasing the latest version of CSS, which is uh, CSS3, was around trying to get away from using HTML and specifically tables as a means to do layout. So really, with CSS3, the ultimate goal is that all of your markup and all of your document structure is handled in HTML and all of your layout is handled in CSS. And even once CSS3 came out, that was still a little bit of a struggle. So it evolved from table layout being very rigid, not being able to change, for example, row order, column order based on screen size to then what's called float layout. And floats are essentially where an element, if it doesn't take up 100% of the width, is going to kind of float, quote unquote, and hover usually to the left. So in most Western countries, you're going to declare float left, or you would at this point in time. And then you can have two elements side by side, for example, if one was set to width equals 40% and the other being width 60%. Those two will be um, next to each other. Now, using a float layout, you can also declare pixel widths. So you would have, let's say you have a container of 600 pixels. You have two elements that are each 300 pixels wide. They'll uh, show up next to each other half and half. Once that screen shrinks down to, let's say, 500 pixels, you're now going to have those elements on top of each other. So 300 going across and then underneath another 300. 
And floats definitely did um, help a lot in terms of building out kind of our, our design ideas of what a website should look like and see a lot of the foundations of like kind of longer pages and pages that should resize going back to the float model. And this again is, is where Bootstrap came in. Bootstrap as well as Foundation and a, a couple of other frameworks were really again based off of setting up a 12 column structure to where your, your elements are taking up a certain number of columns at desktop view and then a certain number of columns at mobile view. And again, getting into best practices a little bit, the idea at the time was obviously most people are going to be viewing this on a desktop because that's how websites have been looked at for years. And when someone looks it up on a BlackBerry or a first-gen iPhone, then they'll get a, a mobile version. That really started to change, I would say probably like 2014, maybe a little bit after, to where mobile first became a really popular and kind of vital concept in development. And that's where you are designing actually for the kind of the lowest common denominator of browser. And then with the assumption that desktop computers, et cetera, are going to have a faster connection and are going to be able to download supplemental styles after. So with that, again, still using the float model, but trying to design for the mobile first and then bigger screen sizes, uh, kind of secondary. So again, talking about those overriding styles. From there, we also got uh, Flexbox and Grid. And Flexbox is a essentially a margin management system. So it allows you to have multiple elements within a parent that are basically going to resize based off of each other. It's just a smarter way of resizing. And then Grid is probably the latest layout spec that's really kind of gotten wide browser support. And that allows you to do basically full-on layout declarations on a, a true Grid system, probably more familiar to uh, people who have experience in the print industry or laying out things with uh, InDesign, et cetera. Being able to declare different grid systems for different screen sizes has been absolutely huge here um, here lately. In terms of other um, CSS frameworks that are out there right now, as I said earlier, we have uh, Bootstrap and Foundation. Those were the two that I got probably most familiar with when I was using um, CSS frameworks heavily. Recently, you have things like Tailwind and Bulma which you can think of almost as, uh, as utility classes. So the idea is less so saying span six for everything. It's really, it's kind of using those shared classes. So saying um, this element should have text small, text center, et cetera, kind of declaring your CSS almost, but doing it in a class-based way. And again, if you're using a build tool that can come with some, uh, some efficiencies, because you can use something like Gulp that allows you to bring in an entire framework and then export only the portions that you actually used. That is kind of the, the main drawback of using a, a CSS framework is that you are loading in this huge style system and you might only use 20 to 30% of it. And the rest of it is just kind of taking up additional, essentially code bloat. That's why you start seeing some more of these, uh, these systems that will either filter out the CSS. And it's also why Grid and Flexbox kind of came out in the first place was to allow developers to really kind of declare their styles and their layouts directly in their CSS without bringing in that extra overhead. So which browsers support all of this? Because this is a lot of frameworks and a lot of functionality. Do all browsers support it equally? Or is there one browser that supports it better? Or is this just a nightmare for developers to make make it run everywhere. I was going to say, I really wish it was a, it was a universal spec. And um, I, I'll probably touch on that a little bit later as well. But yeah, as of right now, it is a little bit of a problem in, in the CSS world. Again, we've really built out a lot of tools that cover a lot of kind of the, the inherent, I don't want to say weaknesses, but kind of the inherent 
hoops that you have to jump through when dealing with CSS. So I would definitely say, at least for me, there, there are other people that, that disagree. I think that Chromium-based browsers are, are the best to develop in in terms of front-end development and especially working with CSS. A lot of people like Firefox as well. And I know there are some tools on there that, that definitely help the process. Personally, for me, I've always been on Chrome. So using those tools does just feel more familiar to me. But yeah, as you mentioned, prefixing is a very big part of CSS. So when I talk about building out tools that help us as, as front-end developers do our work more quickly, auto-prefixer is a godsend. And essentially what that does is because not all browsers support CSS specs at the exact same time. So for example, Grid, up until recently did not have universal support. And even farther back than that, if you were an agency that was contractually obligated to uh, support IE9, you also had a lot of, you basically had to build in debugging time to make your layouts actually work on, on that browser as well. But essentially what each browser does is they might implement these properties at different times because they're essentially writing their own specs. They come up with those rules and those properties with a prefix relative to their browser. So Safari is going to use WebKit, Firefox uses Mozilla or Moz. And you see a few of those uh, throughout. But luckily there's tools like AutoPrefixer that take our kind of generally accepted um, CSS or universal CSS and they'll add those applicable prefixes where they're needed. So it isn't that much of a headache anymore. And the other tool that I use probably on a daily basis is a site called Can I Use, which essentially outlines which browsers will support what kind of rules and that works not only for CSS, but for JS as well. But yeah, especially recently Grid and Flexbox were, were definitely two areas where each browser, because they implemented it at different times, did have a slightly different spec. So what happens if you implement some CSS that it's not supported, let's say in Safari, but it's supported in Chrome? What happens when it loads in each of those? It can really vary. So for certain things, we saw this a lot with Flexbox, certain kinds of margin management worked in some browsers and some didn't. So if you're lucky, maybe everything just renders in a single column. If you're unlucky, you could be blowing out your viewport and having to try and figure out where your elements actually are in the browser now that it's four times wider than it should be. It's just part of the game being a front-end developer. We spend a decent amount of time doing cross-browser testing to make sure that everything is rendering appropriately. And as I said, with a lot of the tools that, that are in the market now, a lot of that process is automated and allows us to simply write our standard spec and then kind of fill the holes where they're needed. But luckily, more and more often, Auto Prefixer gets it right or um, these browsers are building in a fallback. Well, then that begs the question of of debugging. How do you debug CSS, right? Because if you have all of these issues and you're testing and it's just not working, how do you go about debugging? Is there a debugger for CSS? So there are built-in debuggers to a lot of IDEs. So I'm a, I'm a pretty faithful VS Code user. And they'll definitely let you know if there is a typo or something like that. It's kind of the basic level of debugging. Outside of that, a lot of what we do really is kind of uh, based around hot reloading and kind of writing our code, seeing how the browser takes it and renders it and uh, adjusting from there. So I'll do a lot of actually coding in the browser itself. So again, leveraging those dev tools and the console in the browser. A lot of those tools are built around CSS and, and JS debugging. So a lot of it does come down to just kind of going in, declaring a, a block of styles in the inspector style sheet. At least in Chrome, they allow you to create your own uh, style sheet in the browser session itself. And then what I'll do is I'll kind of do my live coding in there, copy it, and then put that into my actual source project. So that's a lot of my workflow. We also use a tool called Browser Stack, 
which allows us to not only test on virtual machines running a certain browser, but they're actually connected to real physical devices. So if we want to test on a iPad third generation or something like that, something very specific, we can actually fire up a, a hardware version of that directly from our machine in our browser. And most of those browsers are also going to give us their relative consoles as well. So we're still able to figure out our bugs and make sure that our layouts are looking correct on every screen size, every um, browser iteration, be that WebKit or Chromium-based or custom. So it definitely isn't a universal process for debugging all of the browsers all at once, but there are tools to make sure that you're identifying each device or each um, target browser that you might want to hit. I got to tell you, Mark, and I'm going to sound old, and that's probably because I am old, but uh, you guys are pretty lucky with all these tools. The tool that you just mentioned about the hardware that you can configure it to basically test with any kind of hardware, iPad version 3 or Generation 3, is really awesome because I remember back then, uh, and I'm talking about late 90s, very early 2000s, I used to do web development. And man, you literally had to have the different browsers, if it was Mac or Windows, you physically had to own all of this. So I remember as a developer way back, literally having three, four, five, six different machines and whatever other kind of device that existed back then to test it out. And I remember development was a major, major pain. So being able to spawn off all these things inside your browser is pretty awesome. Oh, it, it's huge for us. Absolutely. And the same thing goes as well for, um, again, I mentioned earlier, doing uh, HTML email debugging. Outlook is the bane of my existence. I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but it actually uses Microsoft Word as its rendering engine instead of a browser. Wow. No, I was not aware of that, but that's not good news. <laughs> yeah. So whenever we're uh, debugging our CSS in an email, again, uh, being inlined and uh, embedded style blocks, uh, something else that we definitely have to deal with uh, on a regular basis. Yeah, definitely. So you mentioned a lot of stuff here. How does a developer keep up with this stuff? How do you keep up with this? How do you know what's... Because, I mean, obviously, new things come out, it seems like, every minute. How do you pick and choose what to focus on and how do you keep up with it? A lot of it really just comes down to what you're paying attention to. So uh, there are a couple of leading front-end specific brands online. So CSS Tricks is the first one that comes to mind. That blog is uh, is kind of the Bible for a lot of uh, us CSS fans. And there are a lot of... Um, I, I'm really into YouTube, so I, I love old school dev tips. That was uh, pretty foundational for me when I really started coding full-time. I uh, was looking at really just kind of how these websites we use every day, how they're built and how CSS can, um, can be used to make them more interactive or better overall experiences. And yeah, there, there's a bunch of kind of... I'll watch live coding sometimes just to kind of see what's going on. And CodePen also has been a very positive tool for me to use. So CodePen, if you're not familiar, essentially allows you to... It, it's a playground or a sandbox for front-end technologies. So if you fire up a pen, it basically gives you HTML, CSS, and JavaScript windows to build out a page without needing to like, you know, figure out any of those kind of basic DevOps things like firing up a DigitalOcean droplet or installing an OS or any of that kind of stuff. It just puts you right into a code editor online and allows you to share your work with other people. So being able to see what other people are able to build for like sample 
sections of websites or how they approach um, building out team member cards or different things and all the way up to you can use React and Vue and all those front end frameworks on CodePen as well. That's been a very powerful uh, tool that I've used and they also have a, an in-person community as well. So obviously when, uh, when COVID's not going on, I was able to attend quite a number of CodePen meetups, meet up with other front end developers, see what they're uh, working on. And the other thing I tell people all the time is CSS is kind of, a, it's a lot like skiing. I used to, uh, to teach skiing and snowboarding when I was in college. It's fairly easy to pick up, but it's very, very difficult to master. So what that means is there's a lot of different ways to approach a different layout. So even a couple developers working from the same sketch or Figma file, they might code something in their CSS completely different from the other. So learning how other people are going to kind of approach what their code is going to look like and just overall their methodology is something that really kind of gets me excited and keeps me enthusiastic about pushing the limits of CSS. What do you love the most about CSS? I would say it really is, again, about that flexibility and kind of being able to approach the same problem and come up with a a bunch of different solutions. And also the ability to kind of be able to tinker with it and allow your styles to evolve. So something I've been doing uh, a lot recently, I believe I mentioned it a little bit earlier, is again, really making sure that our client websites or the websites that we manage are continuing to score well on Google PageSpeed Insights and Lighthouse and some of these other performance tools. And a lot of these websites were coded two or three years ago when the standards were very different in terms of optimization. So being able to take the same layout and again, create basically the same end result, but in a way that's more performant, more accessible, more fluid is something that I really enjoy doing. And on top of that, really, I I love CSS and that it really is kind of the user experience framework or the, the user experience tool. Being able to build in things like micro interactions or transitions, animations, all those kind of um, more advanced techniques that really kind of make a website feel more fun to use or feel more compelling or convert higher. Ultimately, that's stuff that I really love to spend time on and really kind of making a website polished and feel great from from first load to final click. And speaking of those things, you're going to be back next week to talk about a lot more of those details and how those can be accomplished. So I'm looking forward to next week's episode as well. We're almost done here. What do you find most challenging with CSS? I would say probably similar to kind of similar to React in that, again, because the spec changes so often, obviously, as a front end developer, I'm on Stack Overflow on probably an hourly basis, just making sure that, you know, whenever some kind of question comes up, I'm using the community online to figure out what the best approach is. But increasingly, I'm having to kind of put a date range on the answers that I'm looking at. Because something may be uh, you know, an answer from 2014 or 2015 where there is a much better approach now. So again, it, kind of to your earlier point where it really is a lot to keep up with and know what is best practice and what isn't what used to be. So that's something that you, uh, you definitely develop as the more time that you spend as a developer, the more time you spend in the Chrome console. So it, it definitely can be challenging or daunting. But as I said, it's something that's fairly easy to pick up in the beginning and takes a long time and a lot of dedication to master. Now, you mentioned the current version is uh, CSS3, right? Production version. So what would you like to see in the next version? What's cool upcoming in CSS4? And what would you like to see happen? Sure. So CSS as a singular release is continually evolving and changing. So it isn't necessarily guaranteed that we will have a, a CSS4, in quote. But what... W3C uh, has been doing has actually been really developing each individual module. So things again, like, um, like Flexbox and Grid were kind of developed 
on their own, separate from the rest of the spec. And that is something that I definitely appreciate in that they're working on these systems, these, uh, these pieces of syntax in a dedicated way. And they aren't just kind of building up for a once a decade release. Instead, it is a little bit more incremental. That being said, as you alluded to earlier, I definitely think that browser segmentation is probably the biggest weakness of CSS right now and something that I do think needs to be kind of addressed at a, um, at a higher level, very similar to how, uh, how JavaScript has been managed. So you did have around yes, 2015, there was some, uh, some browser incompatibility issues and that has multi- mostly been uh, kind of resolved by continually coming out with a standard version of JavaScript that kind of everyone is using. So I think something like that would be great, really make the browsers kind of stick to a standard and again, take away some of that need to dot or prefix different things, or at least make it specifically to features that browsers want to see that W3C might not be seeing right now. So that would be, I'm not totally opposed to there being certain browser specific things, but I definitely think they should be kind of style elements on top of the foundation that is CSS. They should be nice to haves, but if you're going to prefix something for a specific browser, I think there should be kind of a, a built-in graceful fallback for that feature. It shouldn't be crucial to the layout of the page. Awesome. Well, Mark, unfortunately, we're completely out of time. I really do want to thank you for sharing your knowledge with the community. And I'm super excited that you're going to be back next week to continue the conversation on CSS, but we're going to be chatting on more advanced topics. So thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. It was a pleasure to be here. If people want to get a hold of you, do you want to give a URL or an email or a Twitter, whatever you like? Sure. So you can write uh, occasional blog posts. Those are going to be on our SmartBug media website so that's smartbugmedia.com and you can go to our blog and, and find my author page over there I'm not that active on social right now unfortunately but i do have a twitter it is at mark riba 2nd all right mark thank you so much i really appreciate it and to the rest of you i'm glad you're here with us just a quick reminder to visit www.contentfulcreators.com for more podcast episodes tutorials webinars and blog articles so until the next episode i'm your host marcelo lewin cheers everyone.